you know, being in life is not easy. Participating, contributing to life. One of the things that Renge really made clear is that what I want most is to love and be loved. And what I am most afraid of is to love and be loved. And as time went on, I just wanted to be like him. Like he, he was, the, to me, he was the model. Hey, dog people. I'm very excited to bring you part two of Matt Beisner's incredible interview here on Rescued by a Dog, the podcast about dogs who have actually saved their owners' lives. If you haven't heard part one yet, do yourself a favor and check that out first. Today, Matt will tell us about how his sole dog, Rangi, helped him evolve from a jobless alcoholic into a dedicated dog trainer. In my opinion, a very good one, filled with purpose and gratitude. Today's episode is sponsored by one of my absolute favorite websites, IzzyStays.com, a hotel booking website for animal lovers. Izzy Stays thinks every dog should be as spoiled as yours, so they set up a free and easy way to send the sales commission from your hotel booking to animal rescue organizations. Now for this story about hope and redemption. So one day I'm walking Renge in the new neighborhood I live in, in this wonderful home that we're renting, where somehow we managed to get three dogs in there. At this point, we're going to the shelter and, <laughs> and the ladies at the desk are like, can I see your address? Yes, we're at such and such. Hmm. So Mr. Beisner, it looks like you have three dogs. And then they look at my girlfriend, Brooklyn, and they say, honey, we're just going to put this one under your name. So we, <laughs> we start stacking up dogs at this house. One day I'm on a walk with Renge. I think at this point we, we have Pierre, Renge, Kingston has come back to us. We have Nama. And we have the, 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 the beautiful, mystical Deja Blue, Blue Nose Pity, Miss with the Blue Lacy. Shout out to Blue Lacies, who are the state dog of Texas. So I'm walking with Renge, and we're taking our usual route in our neighborhood. Like a lot of neighborhoods in LA, loose dogs, particular kind of culture around it. And this enthusiastic pit puppy busts out of his back yard gate and comes running at us and in hindsight i don't think he i don't think he had any intention other than can i say hi can i say hi can i say hi you know but pits come on strong and renge wasn't really that he wasn't the kind of dog he did that to and um and they they went nose to nose and i don't i i don't know if i caused this but i know that my reaction to it didn't help i tightened on the leash I pulled back and I yelled and Renge popped mm. and he went right at that dog and they got into it and I put my hand in the middle of it and he bit me, Renge bit me. The, the pity gets taken care of. I actually went to them, I think the next couple of days, went to the family and said, at this point I had started taking my training more seriously. And I said, can I, can I help you with the pity? You know, I, no harm. Um, can I help you with it? But that bite, uh, that night on my on my right hand, right right where the thumb, the base of the thumb meets the wrist, I wasn't really much on self care, and I didn't treat the wound. And uh, I woke up the next morning, and there was a red line, um, like two thirds of the way up my arm, and uh, and I I was in a lot of pain, and uh, uh, Brooklyn took me to the 
ER and the doctor said, um, you're a couple hours from being dead. So, so the doctor says to me, while I'm in her care, only good will come from this. And I, I've been in recovery long enough to like, I, you know, I hear sayings or slogans or things like that. I never heard that one. I thought, well, that doesn't seem like a professional diagnosis. Yeah. What a strange thing to hear in a hospital. Right. And, um, you know, another, another angel in my life. And I said, I, 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 I don't know what you mean by that. She said, only good will come from this. And again, like the woman at the stop sign, she planted that seed in my head. She met me right where I was at. And I thought, okay, okay. I'm going to stay open to the possibility that only good will come from this. And um, <clears throat> so what happened as a direct result of that bite is that I could no longer work at the co-op. And I had I was on disability for six months and I had to rest and heal and learn. And that was the beginning of what would become the Zendog. The Zendog is a company that my wife and I started 12. 11 or 12 years ago as a place for dogs to train, play, socialize, and stay. And by place, I mean in our own home because I've cleared out all the furniture and moved 22 crates in. And, you know, my mom says, uh, your wife's, your your girlfriend's not going to marry you. Be very careful, you know? Um, And the Zen dog uh, actually, I'm not the Zen dog. I, I, I describe myself as the curator of the Zen dog. The Zen dog is predicated on one principle. There are no bad dogs. There are no bad dogs. And when I would later learn in my education that roughly 90% of aggression is fear-based, that sat right in the wheelhouse. Because if I talk about how it is to be a human being, a scared human being, and I think about what lands me in fights or in jail, I'm scared. And if I can see the dog as potentially scared, if I can see Renge as potentially scared, I have immediate emotional access to who this dog might be. So that bite that forced me to slow my, slow my roll, that forced me to, to, to reflect, was the beginning of an experience and a company that would change my life. I began to study, I I didn't, I didn't, uh, I began to study from educated reputable trainers, Nicole Wilde, Dr. Ian Dunbar, Ken McCourt, just like I'd go to seminars, I'd watch videos, I'd start to pick stuff up. Um, I was still in that stage where I'm unlearning things and, uh, and I'm learning things. Um, but the fundamental principle was there are no bad dogs. And so I have to, I have to approach dogs from a certain place with that in mind. And that, and that consideration began the arc of, of changing the trajectory of how I would work. I, I had a, we were doing a lot of socialization in our yard and, uh, like a lot of, like, like a lot of early trainers, I was, you know, kind of doing cowboy work and meaning that I wasn't following a lot of safe setups. And, and then one day, this will sound obvious to a lot of people, but one day it occurred to me, you know, like, why don't I just start doing some muzzle acclimation and get different, safer looks at, at what's happening. And something clicked and all of a sudden Renge 
would be in a yard with 15 other dogs laying in the middle of the yard, not fighting, not feeling the need to, to uh, behave from a place of reactivity and overstimulation because I've set him up to fail. You know what I mean? He's now demonstrating like this, this dog scared me more than any dog, Renge. I had been bit by Renge like a dozen times. So I'm so fascinated that you skipped over these dozen bites. Yeah. Because that's all like what I'm seeing when you're telling this story is this huge, like cosmic worldview shift that you yeah. had where you went from wanting to die every day. Yeah. And and thinking you needed to leash pop a dog with a prong collar on yeah. to being the person that I know to be one of the most sensitive and kind and gentle trainers that I've met and, and with these incredible body language skills. And so there's a couple pieces that are still missing in there, which is you were afraid of him. You've just said that he bit you a dozen times. So you, I, it's almost like you don't want to mention that because you don't want to like sully his reputation or oh, something. No. But <laughs> I think what you're keying in on, and I really appreciate you digging at this. What you're keying in on is that trauma had been normalized in my life. And so it's all relative. So the, the very simple solution with a jindo or not is if you have a dog that takes your socks and goes under the bed and resource guards socks, don't leave your socks on the floor. That's a start. Yeah. Right. That must have been confounding to Renge. And there's a really important point to be to be brought back around. It is traumatizing for a dog to bite. Yeah. So, so like, this is the, my PSA. So it's not okay. It's not cool. We don't let it ride. It's not part of, of a demonstration of how brave I am. You know, it really is a demonstration of my lack of understanding. Not yeah. for lack of love, but my lack of understanding. So I, I, I think that the glossing over it, I don't know what that's about, but I do know that I had, but trauma had been normalized and violence had long been normalized. And Renge, you know, he's so astute. He's so keen and he's just such a remarkable being that of course he would be tutoring me. But he's demonstrating a change in behavior as a result of, of my, really as a result of my willingness to set him and everybody else up better. We had like this bizarrely huge, it seemed like a casting couch. And by the time we're living in this, in this place in the same neighborhood where, where Renge bit me when I tried to bake up the fight and we were boarding at our place, we would have nine dogs on that couch. And Renge, being Renge, would always lay on his mat on the floor in the center of the room adjacent to me. Mm. That's how he ruled. And so he held space and, and he held the room. And, I, and when we opened our facility, I saw the same thing. He'd be in the middle of the yard, a bunch of dogs running around, and he would just be there like, like a lion, like he knew his place. Yeah. The other thing that stands out to me about Renge is he was like... He was so goofy. Wouldn't put those two things together, but I've got a photo of him where we were all meditating and Renge's upside down on his back on a yoga mat 
doing Renge spazoid stuff, not understanding that we're supposed to be, you know, <laughs> holy and serene because we're meditating. He says, this is a great time. Everybody's quiet, great time to <laughs> my stretches, you know. And the other thing, the other thing, going back to the softest ears in the world of dogs, he was really tender. Mm. He was really tender and kind. And by the time my son was four and a half and got to meet him, I mean, we'd spent a lot of time together. Bless my son for listening to me. <laughs> you know, thank you to my mentors for helping me raise my son that way. And uh, and Renge, I, I said to Talon, that's my son's name, Talon, you want to meet Renge today? Talon was so excited. And Renge came out into the living room where we were. Talon st- stayed next to me and Renge just came and kind of brushed along him, which sometimes is not a great move with a dog with an aggression history. But I knew Renge well enough to know that it was an invitation. And Talon gave him one gentle pet in the middle of the back. And then Renge laid down and gave him his belly. Oh. Right? And you're, if you get Renge's belly, you are in a circle. And Renge lay there and Talon pet his belly. and. Uh, and then Renge gets up, sneezes, which was always his cue for, we're good. <laughs> I'm done. Can be a pretty common uh, stress cue. And he gets up. And from that moment on, I could leave them alone together. And what's fascinating is what that changed for Renge was that when our daughter Lyric came along, he was immediately gentle with her and kind with her. And as time went on, I just wanted to be like him. Like he, he was, to me, he was the model. If only, if only I could be that dignified and noble and protective of those I love and clear and gentle and funny and kind and as magnificent as he was he was unassuming people would come into a yard and they'd see all the other hullabaloo and then they'd notice what's that dog doing in the middle of the yard oh my god he's just watching like a lion and uh and so as i have this privilege to have an opportunity to have a TV show, uh, Dog Impossible, which is where we've got both seasons on Disney Plus. Um, and I'd like to say, you know, I got a TV show, but I think the reality is a TV show got me because one never knows what one's getting into. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for people who don't know how a, a reality show, or let's say a dog training reality show gets made, as a participant and one of the associate producers of the show by way of, you know, how I had to run things, I would get a look at each episode and submit notes on the episode to the um, executive producer. And then I would never see the episode again until, uh, or the season until the rest of the world watched it with me. And I saw things, um, I saw things that I didn't like and what I had done. Some, some things were things that I, I had, I hadn't done in years. Uh but I was in a moment of overwhelm and I wasn't thinking straight and other things were things that I had practiced. And, and it just like, and I thought, Oh, this is, I'm not even going to try and defend, pretend or explain. This is, this is, I need better. I need to show up better. 
Uh, and thankfully, we, we we got a second season. And when the second season came around, I was committed to being a certified trainer and to, to bring new understandings and and education and methods. And also, I was stepping into a role that I'm now really grateful for and comfortable with. And that is that I am one of the few people, A, who has survived cancel culture because there was an understandable backlash after season one. But I'm one of the few people um, who actually gets to grow publicly. Um, but I I relied, like, I relied on Renge's presence. I needed him to tell me what was and wasn't okay in the yard and with the dog that that we were working with. And uh, and I relied on his eyes and ears and sense and sensitivity. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm so fortunate to, to say that's true for a number of dogs that we that we live with and have lived with. Kingston, same way. I've never met a small dog who was as socially gifted as Kingston. He was Kingston was not impressed with anybody. We had a German Shepherd situation where the Shepherd had killed a small dog. And by the time Kingston and this Shepherd were done working together, they would hang out together. I'm not talking about like we forced him to do it. I mean, we, we gave him choice and Kingston would be laying in the yard with those shepherds, mm. you know, like the, the gift that these dogs have. And if I can just have enough courage to be open hearted, to tolerate the profound beauty of seeing that, and I might have the privilege of seeing it again and, and someday calling it a relationship. So COVID hits. Um, we, uh, we, we are one of the very fortunate families that actually saw it as an opportunity to relocate. We went from LA to Austin, Texas. Um, couldn't keep the facility open. Uh, I actually went from being a, a, uh, a business owner with a family to a family man who has a business. My quality of life changed drastically for better. And as things slowed down and, um, in a lot of different ways and my priorities became more clear, and frankly, I was just running on a lot less adrenaline and carrying a lot less stress, I had more time for the intimate moments with our dogs, and they needed it. And then Kingston died. Kingston died in May. He was older, uh, deaf and blind, 16 years old. And then we found ourselves in a very unusual place because I could see Renge's behavior changing. He was slower. He was still gentle and kind and fierce and not to be effed with. But I could just see he was sleeping more. And when Kingston was gone, Kingston was his buddy. Nama was his play pal. But Kingston, they used to just spend hours back to back sleeping together. I saw the shift. And we found ourselves in this like new and, and kind of and really awkward position where we knew 
he was going to die. We knew that he had begun active dying. We didn't know how far along he was, but but as I have learned from wonderful vets, I learned that one, once they begin active dying, we will find ourselves understandably grasping to the idea that they were better today. They're doing better today. Yeah. But what we're seeing, what we're seeing is the flicker of the light and we mistake the movement of the flame for the flame's vitality. And a wonderful doctor, Dr. Palmquist, he said two things. The heart is usually right in these matters. And then I also had remembered what senior dog doc and Dr. Lisa had said, that it's better a day too early than a day too late. And, uh, and I, I looked at my schedule with my wife and I said, when Ringe goes, Um, I'd like the listeners to know that I've actually not talked about this at length because it takes the time it takes. Yeah. But I have to honor this dog. And now's the time to do it. And, uh, I, and the other thing that Dr. Palmquist said is they don't usually like to withstand the summer. They like to go before summer, and we're in Texas, and I wasn't going to do that to my big chuck. So we made, I looked at the calendar, and I said to Brooklyn, I'm going to need like a week off. And how far out are my appointments, and when can I take a week off? And, uh, and we made the choice. And in the last three days before we we uh, helped him pass. The downshift was remarkable. And, and uh, three days out, I remember coming into my office and he was laying in the office on the middle of my carpeted floor. Just so beautiful and peaceful and noble. And, uh, and, I, and I, I thought I got to go lay down next to him. Now, he, he, he wasn't really into that. It wasn't his thing. And I went to lay down next to him. And he kind of woke up from his slumber and he scooched himself toward me. He had never done. And I laid there with him for a while. And I spent the next three days sleeping on the floor in the office and just around him. He would come and go, and you know, he would wander. He didn't feel good. He was restless. And then we helped him pass. And I knew that that dog, that guardian angel had changed the world because he had changed me. And he not only saved my life, he saved the lives at this point, thousands of dogs. Did you ever get to a place where he didn't bite you? Yeah, it's actually fascinating. We were still in California. So when he passed, he was almost 17. 
not bad for a dog who was adopted at four and a half years old from who knows where. Um, yeah, there was a moment he was about 15 years old and we were in Glendale, California, LA area. <laughs> and he had caught a bird or a mouse. He caught a rodent. He still had it in him. And, uh, and I went outside I knew I was going to have to clean it up, but I was also trying to help him not get sick, at least from a GI standpoint. And I went over to him and I asked him to drop this creature. I forget what it was, but the rodent that he had caught and he dropped it. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it wasn't I kind of like given up the ghost from a training standpoint. I just thought. It's not, it's not a big deal to me. We can live with it. I probably could have done a, I mean, knowing what I know now, I could have done plenty of resource guarding work and then taken the risk out of it, but or minimized the risk greatly. But he dropped it. And like from that point on, we found a ball that the neighbor had thrown in the yard. Hey, Rennie, can you drop that? Drop it. Reluctantly, but he would drop it. I, I can't speak for him. Um, I don't mean to be self-deprecating when I think when I say that that he was he was a much better being than I was. But when he passed, my mom sent me a card and she said, you know, you saw the magnificent in him and he saw that in you. I think she was right about that. And we were we were the definition of ride or die, you know? Yeah. And um you know, and part of the challenge, even in the even in the years where I was still battling with suicidal ideation, which again, the listeners, I, I didn't do alone. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I'm not here because I treated anything alone. Um I got help from the right places and the right people. Um but uh even then I remember having thoughts, if I were to take my own life, who's gonna take care of Renge? Yeah. Was there a time that you can recall thinking to yourself, I don't want to die anymore? Yeah. Yeah. I remember talking to a buddy of mine once saying, you know, there's this thought that keeps happening, keeps popping up involuntarily in the day. This thought goes into my head. And then... Matt did the thing that would forever change his life for the worse. That was literally what kept coming up in my head. And I told this man, and he said, well, maybe. Maybe next time that comes up, just I saying, and then Matt did the thing that would change his life for the better. And, uh, I'm not just about slogans. I'm really got to be about action and service, but that one really stuck with me. Um, you know, being in life is not easy. Participating, contributing to life. One of the things that Renge really made clear is that what I want most is to love and be loved. This is what I saw in him. What I want most is, a, is to love and be loved. And what I am most afraid of is to love and be loved. And my greatest weapons are to withhold love or deny you the chance to love me. Hmm. My greatest gifts are to love and be loved. How did he tell you that he loved you? How did he show you? Uh, usually, 
<laughs> I can still somehow his breath was was good almost up until he died. It must just have been like that must be a thing that I haven't been kissed by too many jindos, but I'm just gonna attribute that to to the unique exquisite <laughs> unique uh nature of jindos. But he was so soft, I'd come in close and I'd scratch his ears and I'd get my face next to his. He'd duck his head a little bit and he'd just give me some some kisses on the lips, just really soft. And then I'd open my palm and I'd rub it on the on the open on his open ear and he would just lean mm. in. He would lean into that. And you know what's amazing? I just remembered about that, that kind of moment. Right before he died, our little daughter Lyric, who, who at the time was probably two and a half, she she came into my office where he was. They had the kind of relationship where she could come and go and they could interact together. And and I had turned my back and then I turned to look back around and she was rubbing him right in the same place, right on the jowl, around the ear. And he just had his head pressed. I took a photo of it, had his head pressed so hard into her hand, but gently enough that it didn't knock it over because he loved hard. People are dying for connection. Dogs are dying for connection. The last two, year, two years, it's been really hard for people and, and their animals. And connection shows up in a number of ways. But the, but the predictor to connection is consideration. And what I like about consideration for somebody who grew up beaten and hard-hearted is that it's not the same thing as somebody telling me to be kind. That wasn't, I didn't know how to access that. But consideration is just a thought. What's the thing that I don't know here, the knowing of which would change things for the better? Are you happy to be alive now? Oh my God, oh, what a, that's a powerful question. I am so grateful. I used to hear my mentors say, you know, I almost missed this. I, I was one drink or one accident or one drug away from missing this entire thing. And I am inexplicably privileged. I think beyond happiness, because sometimes even that can be uncomfortable, I am just so deeply grateful that I'm able to experience joy and happiness and life and participation and connection. If Renge could understand human English, what would you say to him? Probably, <laughs> probably the same thing I said to him thousands of times. Um, uh, most honorable Jindoka Thank you for letting me be your friend. And that ER doctor was right. Only good has come from this. <laughs>